Welcome to our weekly Church on the Rock podcast. For more information, visit us at churchak.org, download our Church on the Rock AK app, or like us on our Facebook page. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy our weekly podcast. My title today is Midlife Crisis. Go ahead and raise your hand if you're in a midlife. No, I'm just kidding. Don't raise your hand uh, over that. Uh, midlife crisis. In the 1960s, the term was coined by a psychoanalyst. That should tell you something. Uh, Elliot Jaquez is the one who coined the term, and he coined the term because he was working with individuals, and he was discovering that somewhere in their um, mid to late 30s, they were experiencing what he called a midlife crisis. It involved several things, which is interesting when you think about it, because when we think about a midlife crisis, we do not think mid to late 30s. That's probably thanks to Brad Pitt, who made 60 look like it's 20, and so we're like, oh, I can wait longer now to have my midlife crisis. But it quickly became um, sort of embraced as an expectation. Right. He was identifying something he was observing, and yet culturally, this term caught fire. And it really sort of became an excuse for bad behavior in a certain season of life. And it was sort of um, uh, uh, built around this imagery of the middle-aged guy who goes and buys a red Corvette and you know, finds a wife who's you know, 35 years younger than he is, and that was the epitome of this is the midlife crisis. But he had actually observed it across the board, in individuals. Now, here's what's interesting, is that um, they identify that it's brought on by three primary inner turmoil things. Now, regarding specifically identity, who am I, regret over past decisions, and mortality. I'm going to die, and it seems like it's getting closer faster. Right? Now, here's what's really interesting is that the idea of a midlife crisis is a uniquely Western idea. Most cultures, countries, don't have a term for that. It isn't an assumption that this happens in your life. And yet it caught fire in Western culture. It almost became an expectation that this season would come in everyone's life. And here's what's interesting, is it's sort of built around these three questions. Um, Who am I? Because many of us identify ourselves with what we do rather than who we actually are. And then when I don't do that thing anymore, or I don't receive recognition for doing that thing, or I'm not valued for the thing that I do, we have an identity crisis. It's built around what we do versus who we are. And the second question is really, um, how did I get here? Like regret over past decisions. I I made a wrong decision here. I missed God's will here, but I got myself in this situation. And you're just living in a place of regret over the past versus learning from it to grow in the future. And and the third one really is um, how long do I have left? Because if I'm running out of time, I better get busy living the kind of life I think I should be living, enjoying the things that I think are important and that I really want to enjoy in my life. And the problem is that all three of those questions lead to the same result over and over and over again, a crisis. 
in life. And, and the reality is the gospel provides the fundamental answer to all three of those things. If you're wondering, how do I avoid a midlife crisis? We're going to be looking at a character, a few characters today that are going to help us understand what that looks like. Because if you're living with a sense of confusion or failure or fatalism about the future, then you are a prime candidate for midlife crisis. In fact, most of us spend our lives running away from our true identity in Christ, running away from our past and running away from death. And if you believe those are the goals, the objectives, then it's going to be a real problem in the future because you and I were not created to live in that way. We were actually created to run hard until we run out of time. The truth of the matter is that you and I were actually created to be running towards eternity, not away from death. And in that perspective, you live fearless. Death is simply a transition into what I was actually created for, and that is eternity. And the characters that we're going to look at today, these stories are about men and women who clearly are not having a midlife crisis. Somehow they skipped over that whole thing that we've sort of expected in our lives. What they're experiencing is midlife conquest. Like they are kicking butt and taking names in those seasons of life, and there's a reason that they actually are. Now, in 1 Chronicles chapter 4, and if you've ever read 1 Chronicles chapter 4, you probably don't remember it. <laughs> and here's the reason. It starts off with a riveting list of hard-to-say names, like lots of the genealogies in the Bible. In fact, I'll just give you a sampling here. 1 Chronicles chapter 4, 1 through 3. The descendants of Judah were Perez... Hezron, Carmi, Hur, and Shobal. Shobal's son, Reiah, was the father of Jahath. Jahath was the father of Hamumai and Lahad. These were the families of Zorites. The descendants of Etam were Jezreel, Isham, and Ib, uh, Idbash. Whew, say that ten times fast. And their sister, of course... Hazel Ela Pony, which is one of the Hebrew My Little Ponies, I'm guessing. Uh, like, like, just lean over to your parents and say, thanks for not naming me from that list, um, unless your name's Judah. Uh, so, man, it, it, like, you read through this list, and it just goes on and on and on. Um, have you ever had this experience, like, um, you have a friend who was in a movie? Anybody know, know someone who was in a movie? And, and they t I was in a movie, they tell you what movie it was, and then you go and you watch the movie. And you're looking and looking and looking, but you do not... I, I had this recently. A friend of mine was in a movie, um, and I went looking for him in the movie. And I even had to find out, like, could you give me the timestamp? You're at the timestamp, and you can't find them, because what you're expecting is they must have, like, a speaking line in the movie. Or In this particular case, I discovered that they were there. It was a wedding reception scene, and they were, like, three miles away on the stage with the disco band is how they're listed in the IMB, whatever it is. Like, like disco band member. That's, that's who they were. Like, this blue... You could never tell unless they told you, that's me. And you think about it, and you're like, nope, you weren't in a movie. 
right? Like, but they were. That's kind of how I think about lists like this. Like, I was in the Bible. Really? Where at? Right here. Hazel pony. Like, true, you were in the Bible, but like, not in any really significant way. But in the middle of this list of names, there is a character who shows up and two verses are committed to this person. It's just so-and-so was the father of so-and-so, and these were their siblings. And then all of a sudden, in 1 Chronicles chapter 4, verse 9, this is what it says. Now, Jabez was more honorable than his brothers. And his mother called his name Jabez, saying, because I bore him in pain. There's two verses here. Jabez is actually going to pray an extraordinary prayer here in just a few moments. But why in the middle of this genealogy, this list of names, does this guy all of a sudden get a significant shout-out in the middle of all of that? There's actually a really specific reason that Jabez gets this shout-out. But first of all, I want to let you know that any Hebrew reader who read this particular verse, when they got to the portion about his name they would conclude a couple of things. First of all, his mother is identifying with Genesis chapter 3, which is where God gave the curse to Eve. And the curse was, for disobedience in the garden, you will have great pain in childbearing. And she's identifying in this moment, the curse is still in effect in my generation. I experienced what God said Eve would experience in each and every generation after that. I experienced that in the birth of my child. Now, if you've ever heard a sermon on Jabez's name, you've probably heard someone reference that his name means pain, which would not have been all that uncommon to name your child something that was significant in their birth or those kinds of things or where they were from or their lineage or that kind of stuff. But it actually isn't pain. His name is actually, in Hebrew, nonsensical. It it doesn't connect to any other word. It's a standalone word, but it's a word that's actually made out of all the same root letters as the word pain. And, And yet, she does something really interesting, and there's a reason that they believe she's done this. His name is Abatz, and she takes those letters, and she changes it, and she makes it into... Estab. Estab is the word for pain, and she mixes those letters up and calls him Jabez. And most theologians believe that the reason for this is that she is actually making a declaration about his role in undoing the curse. In fact, this is what Noah's father does when he is named is he takes this root word, these root letters, and he's making a declaration that in great pain I bore this child. It's connected to the curse all the way back in the Garden of Eden, but I'm not going to call his name pain. I'm going to use the letters for the word pain, and I'm going to mix them up as a declaration that it is going to be undone in these generations. It's a really interesting thought all by itself, but here's the other piece. It actually makes sense with the prayer that he prays. 
Because the prayer that Jabez prays, and if you read it in the New King James, you'll actually get what I believe is an accurate translation of the text. And it is, he does not request of the Lord that he doesn't experience pain. He requests of the Lord that he does not bring pain to others. He's like, my mother experienced great pain in childbirth, and I'm telling you, my life is going to be a life that does not bring pain to others. It's a declaration about who he is and who he is going to be. Now, in verse 15, you discover that um, he has a family line that has some really familiar people in it. Obviously, his family line goes all the way back to Judah and the tribe of Judah, but in his family line is an individual named Caleb. Now, if you know the Old Testament narrative at all, and when the children of Israel enter the promised land, Caleb is a key figure in the entering of the promised land. In fact, there are 12 spies that are sent into the promised land. And they go into the promised land, and what they're supposed to do is they're supposed to return from the land that God has promised the children of Israel, and they are supposed to give a report of what the land is like. It's really important. They were not asked to give a report about whether or not they could take the land. God had already guaranteed that. So these 12 spies go into the land, they return, and two of the spies, Joshua and Caleb, come back with a good report. Man, you can't imagine. Like, the blueberries are so huge. Like, the grapes, it's, it's a land flowing with milk and honey. It's a great, great land. And the other 10 spies are like, yeah, it's a great land and all, but there are giants in fortified cities who will crush us like grasshoppers. And the people are persuaded to not believe that they can do what God already guaranteed they can do. He didn't ask them to come back and bring a battle report and an assessment of whether they could take the land. He asked them to go in and come back and give a report of how awesome the land is that he has given them already. As a result of those ten spies and the way the children of Israel respond in this moment, they actually do not get to enter the land for 40 years. In fact, all of the people involved in that season, that generation, will die in the wilderness and never get to go into the land that God has promised to them. All of them save Joshua and Caleb. And Joshua and Caleb get to enter the land. Now, Numbers chapter 14, verse 6. If you would fast forward from this moment when Joshua and Caleb stand up in front of the people and they're like, don't miss out in this moment on what God wants to do. They plead with the people. They like tear their clothes. They're crying out. They're yelling at the people. And the people are like, nope, we're not going in. It's too scary. And so fast forward 40 years from this moment. And here's what I want you to know. Over those 40 years, Caleb does not seem to have experienced a midlife crisis in any way, shape, or form. In fact, um, here's what it says in Joshua 14, verse 6, now that they have entered the land. A delegation from the tribe of Judah, led by Caleb, son of Jephne, the Kenizzite, came to Joshua at Gilgal. And Caleb said to Joshua, Remember what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, about you and me, when we were at Kadesh Barnea? 
I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to explore the land of Canaan. I returned and gave an honest report. But my brothers who went with me were frightened, uh, frightened the people from entering the promised land. For my part, I wholeheartedly followed the Lord my God. So that day, Moses solemnly promised me, the land of Canaan on which you were just walking will be your grant of land and that of your descendants forever because you wholeheartedly followed the Lord my God. Now, as you can see, the Lord has kept me alive and well and as he promised for all these 45 years. How old is he? Yeah, that's old. All these 45 Years since Moses made this promise, even while Israel wandered in the wilderness. Today I am 85 years old. I am as strong now as I was when Moses sent me on that journey, and I can still travel and fight as well as I could then. So give me the hill country that the Lord promised me. You will remember that as scouts, we found the descendants of Anak, the giants living there in great walled towns. Those things don't seem to go together. Like, remember the promise that Moses made that I would get the land? And you remember the giants that were in that land and huge walled cities? I got to have it right now. Like, like, give it to me in the hill country. But if the Lord is with me, I will drive them out of the land just as the Lord said. I've been thinking about this this week. What promise... Did you hear from God that you've been holding on to for 45 years and you are still just as passionate today about seeing it fulfilled as you were on the day it was given? That's a pretty extraordinary thing. I mean, we live in a culture, right? Instant gratification culture. It's extraordinary if we actually remain passionate about something God promised and we don't see the fulfillment for 45 days. Like that seems like a long time to us. Like God, you promised and it hasn't shown up yet. And yet what you find in these sorts of individuals is that once God promises something, they are not letting go of it. They're a pit bull on that thing and they will not release it until they see the fulfillment of it. And, And Caleb is carrying the level of passion at 85 years old, 45 years later, for the very thing that God had promised them that he was carrying on the day it was promised to him. There is something to be said for that type of tenacity and faith that is largely lost on us. I have things that God spoke to me in my first year of Bible college, which I like to believe wasn't that long ago, but was 30 years ago. In fact, I have things that I wrote down that I believe I heard from the Lord and stuck in my wallet and have been sitting in my wallet because I have yet to see what I believe is actually the fulfillment of that thing. And yet I am absolutely confident that the day is coming, that it will be fulfilled. And when that day comes, I want to have the same level of passion and vigor and drive as I had the moment I received it to see that thing fulfilled in my life. And there are other things in my life that I feel like I've heard from the Lord and yet I've lost sight of them somewhere along the way. And yet they are still things that God has called me to step into. I didn't see them fulfilled in the way I thought they were supposed to be fulfilled in my life. 
and yet God is trying to communicate with me that he has brought me into that place and to flourish in it. I think the reason that you don't see this sort of midlife crisis thing happening in the lives of these kinds of individuals is because they've believed God will do exactly what he said he is going to do, and they have attached their identity, their purpose, and their eternity to that thing. And therefore, nothing can rob them of it. That's a good word, Pastor. I know, man. It's only a good word because it's in the Bible. But I mean, anyway, amen. I can go longer, I promise. Okay. So Joshua, chapter 15. And this is where it gets really interesting because um, Caleb is most likely the uncle of Jabez. And Caleb's kids pick up this same sense of passion and purpose that Caleb carried. In fact, they're willing to ask for the moon. They're willing to ask for great and extraordinary things. Joshua 15, verse 18. When Aksha married Othniel, Caleb's daughter, she urged him to ask her father for a field. I just want to set the stage here a little bit. Like, hey, you should just ask my dad to give more territory to us. He'd already given them some significant territory, but she's like, we could use some water springs. You should ask him. Apparently, he doesn't have the courage to ask Caleb. And like, honestly, who would? An 85-year-old guy who's ripped and can kick giants in the teeth. Like, (laughs) you ask him. Apparently, he doesn't ask. She shows up at the house. She urged him to ask her father for a field. As she got down off her donkey, Caleb asked her, what's the matter? And she said, give me another gift. You have already given me land in the Negev. Now please give me springs of water too. And her dad said, stop being so stingy. No. So Caleb gave her the upper and the lower springs. I would just say like father, like daughter. Like she's, she's willing to ask and believe that she could receive what's actually already been given to them. And so she comes to her dad and she asks for it. I would just say that there's something about um, the spirit of conquest that is in the daughters of the kingdom. This ability, and you see it often uniquely in women, to ask for extraordinary things of God in faith that they could receive those things. Now, cousin Jabez is going to pray a prayer. We've been introduced to who he is in verse 9, and now in 1 Chronicles chapter 4, verse 10, the one who's going to reverse the curse in his life is going to pray this prayer, and this is how it begins. And Jabez called on the God of Israel, saying, Oh, that you would bless me indeed and enlarge my territory. This word, bless, it literally means I'm empowered to succeed. Here's what's interesting to me. He is asking God to empower him to succeed in taking possession of something that actually already belongs to him. I've most of my life sort of thought about this prayer, asking God to enlarge our territory, to increase our reach, to expand our borders as a prayer that God would give us something that doesn't currently belong to us. And yet, if you put it in the context of Jabez, you put it in the context of Caleb, you put it in the context of Othniel, it's actually a prayer that God would give you the strength to succeed. He would empower you to succeed in taking possession of what's already been provided to you versus going and taking something that does not belong to you. He's already given them all of the land. 
And the great failure of Israel is actually that they don't take possession of what was already provided to them by God. In fact, ultimately, it will be the thing that gets them in all kinds of trouble, is an unwillingness to take possession of what God had already provided to them. So I want to ask this question. In what places of your life has God already given you power, but you have yet to take authority? In what places in life has God actually already given you power, and yet you have yet to take authority in those places? Here's why this really matters. Uh, Back in 2009, um, we were getting ready to return to Homer to plant a church. Homer was a community we had lived in for many, many years. And in fact, I lived in Homer before I was a pastor. I lived in Homer before I was married. Um, Kitri and I actually got married by Pastor Ray Arno, who was the president of the Bible school there in Homer. But we had a long history in that community. And now we were in a season where God was calling us back to that community to plant a church, specifically to plant Church on the Rock there in Homer. And what you need to know about my history in Homer is that over the years in Homer, um, especially in my upbringing in the charismatic Pentecostal circles, um, I had heard all of the conversation about the spiritual forces of wickedness that had a stronghold in that community. And that if you're going to engage in spiritual warfare, um, you've, got, you've got to pull it out of their hands, right? You've got to take that place back for the kingdom and that you should buckle up for a fight if you're going to do that sort of thing. And don't get me wrong, spiritual warfare is a real deal. But here was something that began to shift in my thinking fundamentally about what God had invited me into. In fact, it's in Matthew chapter 28. It may be a familiar passage to you, but let me just give you the context real quickly here. Matthew 28, Jesus is going to meet up with his disciples. And let me clarify, when I say Jesus is going to meet up with his disciples, I mean the resurrected from the dead Jesus, who has been traveling around for a significant number of days, preaching and teaching and eating lunch and like, He's got holes in his hands. He's got a hole in his side where the spear pierced him. We're not talking about pre-death burial resurrection Jesus. We're talking about post-death burial and resurrection Jesus is going to meet up with his disciples. So that's who they're going to meet up with on the mountain. Here it is, Matthew 28, verse 16. Then the 11 disciples left for Galilee, going to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. That's good. But some of them doubted. (laughs) What? The resurrected. I, I would like to think that on any given Sunday, if Jesus showed up in here in the flesh, he's like, look, holes. You want to put your hand in here like Thomas did? Like, it's me that we would all believe. But the reality is that some will still doubt. But this doesn't seem to bother Jesus at all. Like, if, if I had known everything, like Jesus knew everything, and I knew some of the group were doubting, it would be really hard for me to move on in this moment. But Jesus is here with them in this moment for a really specific reason, and he launches right into it. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given some authority. I have been given a lot of authority. 
No, what he clearly says to them is, I have been given all authority. And I also want to be really clear with you, disciples. I'm not just talking about heaven. I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. It's all mine. And then this word that you you know when you see it in the scriptures, therefore, what is it there for? It's there because of what he just said. In light of what I've just told you, all authority in heaven and on earth is mine. I have reclaimed all of it. I have taken the keys of death, hell, and the grave. All of it belongs to me. And so for that reason, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. What he's effectively saying in this moment is that all the authority is mine. And because all the authority is mine, you can do everything I've set in front of you to do. If you would just step into the land. I've actually already given you the power I've already given you the capability. I have empowered you. I have blessed you. I have empowered you to succeed at taking dominion in every area of life. It's an extraordinary declaration. And for me personally, it radically shifted. When I spent time understanding what this meant, it radically shifted the way I view the world. In fact, returning to Homer... After all of those years of thinking, man, there's a real spiritual darkness in that community. We need to take that community back for Jesus. I so clearly heard the Lord saying, Jonathan, it's already my community. I already have authority in that community. I'm inviting you to join me in what I'm already doing there. Will you join me in taking possession of what I have already made provision for? And it shifted how I viewed ministry. I'll give you another example. I'm going to get fired up here, and so you better like every now and then just like, oh, that's good. amen. Anybody can say it. I don't care who it is, you know, because like, here's the thing. When Jesus is um, talking about his death on the cross, he says, if I am lifted up, speaking of his death on the cross, I will draw a few people to myself. I will draw some people to myself. And what does he say? I will draw all people. It's the same word he uses here as all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. I will draw all people to myself. You know what that means? That all of those people that you think, there ain't no way Jesus is trying to draw them. Like, well, Jesus hadn't met this person when he made that statement. Like, there is nobody you know that isn't being pulled to the foot of the cross by the magnetic message of the gospel. Like, everyone you know is being drawn to Jesus, which means that no matter who I meet, I'm just joining him in what he's already trying to accomplish in their life. And it actually doesn't matter how resistant they are to the message of the gospel. It doesn't matter how much they declare that they hate God. The magnetic pull of the message of the gospel is pulling on them if Jesus' words are true. Because he has been lifted up on the cross. And what that means for me is I just get to join him wherever I'm at. No matter how they seem to declare who they are, I'm joining him and seeing them pulled by the message of the cross to the person of Jesus. And he has given me all authority in heaven. That doesn't mean no harm's going to come to me or that somebody might not kill me someday. It just means that nobody can do it until he's ready for it. And so I'm not running away from my death. I'm running towards eternity with my life. And that's how you were actually designed to live in the kingdom of God. Amen? Amen. <laughs> I'm going to invite you to stand with us. We're going to move back into a little bit of this, this song, this declaration of God, take me to places 
where I can acknowledge my feet are terrified to go. And we're going to have our prayer ministry teams available on both sides here. As we go into this song, I'm going to invite you just to take some moments and ask the Lord that question. God, where are those places? Maybe it's just overcoming sin personally in your life. Maybe it's a bigger calling that you sense that he's placed on you. But asking the Lord, where are those places you've already made provision and power available for me? And I have yet to step in and take the authority that you've made available. So Jesus, that is our question. As we lift our voices in worship right now, as we move into a time of prayer right now, I ask that you, Holy Spirit, would do the thing only you can do, and that is speak with precision to our personal situations. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more of our podcasts and to discover how you can connect, visit us at churchak.org or download our Church on the Rock AK app from either iTunes or Google Play. Thank you.